Well, one more time to take a, just a moment to pray together. God, thanks for this a moment now we have to, to pause in the week, uh, do something very unique, which is to just open your word as a community. So we want to not just learn in isolation, uh, but learn together, God. So as we, we practice that discipline, God, um, would you, your spirit be with us, continue to be with us, God. Um, you're dwelling among us, even as it says there in Ephesians 2, building us up as a, a dwelling place for your spirit. So thank you that you're doing that. Uh, pray for new revelation this morning in both our hearts individually as well as collectively. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so about, well, it'll be two years in September, uh, we, our family, uh, moved to Pinehurst, which is a community just to the west of here, just above Lake City, kind of north Gatish. There's a few of you that live there. The Van Osses live there. Where our next door? Where were they? They were here and they left. Well, they've got three kids. They're, so anyway, that <laughs> happens. But we're next door neighbors to Ashley and Tim and their kids. And uh, when we first moved in, it's kind of a fixer situation, like a lot of houses in Seattle. Uh, and so we moved in, and there was a lot of work to do. And I think I've told stories about remodeling the basement, taking out an extraordinary number of rhododendrons in the backyard planting some grass, doing those kinds of things. And then um, Tim and I took the fence out between our house because the Runyons had inspired us with this. They had taken the fence out of uh, their yard between their neighbor's house, and they have this idyllic situation, right, with your next-door neighbors. (laughs) So perfect. So we did that, and then the kids are kind of roaming between our houses. And uh, then last summer, Tim was starting to build a fence uh, and in his front yard. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll do that. So I started by, it was, we had this plastic vinyl uh, picket fence, white picket fence. And it was really easy to take down, just boom, boom, boom. I think I free cycled it. It was gone within an hour. And uh, that was about a year ago. And so now we have no fence in our front yard. And, uh, and now I'm seeing fences. It's like when you buy a vehicle and then you see that vehicle everywhere. I'm seeing fences everywhere all the time. I'm driving around thinking about what style I want, how tall I want it if I'll build it myself or hire a contractor, like, you know, I was looking at, there's always that tag on the fence that says made by such and such fence company. I'm like, yeah, I wonder how much that costs, you know? And so, and you're asking maybe why, I mean, it's an idyllic to live in a place without fences. And you'd think so without the fence. I thought somewhat naively, our life would just be more like the little house in the prairie. And a little, a little it has, the kids are, like I said, free to roam. And, um, Strangers are always walking by our house. We have a beautiful garden in the front yard. The previous owner was this constant gardener, and um, they're peering into our yard and smelling the flowers and taking a few here and there. And, um, but it's also been incredibly exposing. Like, really, we're, we live across from this behemoth of a school, Hazel of K-8, uh, and it's uh, exposing. We've lost privacy. Behemoth by a large building. It's a great school. There's some families here that go there. I love Hazel Wolf. Um, but so a sense of, like, we've lost privacy. There's a sense of seclusion and solitude is not in this, with this situation. And that would be nice, right? As well as maybe a safety factor. Like, our kids do go out into the street, and though they put some speed bumps on our street, cars, especially Priuses, by the way, go really fast down our street. You can tell it's a Prius when it, you know, because they just hit it. Like, Prius driver. Uh, if you're a priest driver, now I kill, I've thrown you under the bus. So half the room now hates me. Um, it, reminded, it reminded me earlier this week as I thought about this, of that line from that Robert Frost poem, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Um, 
It's this poetic line that's very reflective of that American truism, good fences make good neighbors. And I, I, I was thinking about that, and then I, rem- I reminded this article I, wrote, I read um, called The Culture of the Fence, Artifacts and Meanings by, I'm going to mess her name up, but she's a professor at NYU, Christina Kochimadova. Um, and she kind of outlines in this article, an essay really, the history of the fence. She, and she says this, quote, the history of civilization is closely tied to the history of the fence. Human civilization is conceptualized as emerging from agriculture, family, and property. And all of these, she says, evolved from the fence. And then she goes on and says, at the end of the day, fences are a product of the struggle for control between humans. In any situation, they ensure that someone has the upper hand. That's why they're associated with law, property, conquest, protection, separation, social division, order, and regulation. All those things are ideas ensuing from the practice of dispute. So fences are a technology we've conceived as a solution to the issue of dispute, social conflict. They're symbolic of, an ex- of the expression of our deeply nearest conviction that we should have some sort of control. Uh, it's provocative stuff when you read this article, and especially for me as I'm pondering our fence or lack thereof in front of our house, but also on a deeper level, the implications, I guess, and the significance of, of fences in our culture, whether that's a 900-mile fence between Mexico and U.S., or the wall separating Israel and Palestine, or uh, the red lines that have shaped and defined the demographics of many American cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, even Seattle, Um, and then the less visible fences of bias and fear that we have of the quote-unquote other, Um, people that don't look like us, talk like us, believe like us. You know, we have a mosque by our house, and uh, you see men on Fridays walking in their traditional Muslim um, clothing, and, and, and that fences go up in my heart because you, you, you kind of wonder, hmm, who are they, right? And uh, as Frost said, there's something in us that doesn't love a wall, right? We just love fences. And to that end, because Paul says here in Ephesians 2.14, very famously, that Christ himself is our peace and that he has destroyed the dividing wall, the fence of hostility that exists between us. Because of that, it's imperative my friends, that we dive deeply into what it means, what that means, and, and what it is within us that loves fences, uh, that needs them, both in the context of Ephesians as well as our lives. In other words, uh, there were obviously fences and walls then, because Paul's talking about them, and there are obviously them today, and the gospel declares that God's intention in Christ is always, always, always to destroy those walls that separate us, always. So we're going to look at that idea this morning. Uh, God's desire to break down the walls of division and how the gospel brings that about. Now, last week, same as this week, the passage broke down into um, sections. So we're going to explore kind of this in, in, in sections. So we're going to look at four. Uh, we're going to look at the problem, like why walls are a problem. We need to talk a little more about that. We're going to look at the purpose, what God desires in place of these walls. Okay? So like you take the fence out of your yard. <laughs> I'm just telling you it's from personal experience there's something missing. So what, what goes in place of that? And then the strategy, how God breaks those walls down. And then what's our responsibility in that work, okay? Like if we say here at Bethany, this is one of our, our little catchphrases, all revelation leads to response. All revelation leads to response. Then how are we to respond to the demands of the gospel? The gospel's putting demands on us this morning, all of us. And so how are we to respond, okay? You with me? Um, so first, the problem. This is in verses 11 to 14. And you, I invite you to have Ephesians 2 open and follow along. Kind of a Bible study this morning. 
the case study of the problem is here. Uh, Paul says it's the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Verse 11, the Jew and the Gentile uh, in that day exist in a state of hostility because of uh, ritual practice, the circumcision. Now, I don't want to get lost on circumcision. Uh, That's not actually the point. If you wanted to talk about that, we could. But uh, Paul is merely using that as an illustration. It would have been like talking about the Seahawks and the 49ers. Like, illustration that would have made sense to them in that day in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, A reality that's seeping its way into the Ephesians church. So one of the words Paul uses to describe this division is the word in verse 14, uh, barrier. He uses a word there to talk about the fence, is the barrier. The barrier is this Greek word phragmos. And the reason I tell you the Greek word is because right there it's a cognate for an English word, fragment. So the phragmos was a fence or railing. um, Specifically in the Greco-Roman world, if you can imagine me putting one up here, you actually have this in some churches. I I remember seeing this in a Lutheran church I visited where there's a railing, a phragmos, uh, erected in public places usually in in the Greco-Roman world that would prevent from two groups from coming together. They put that in churches to prevent you from coming onto the stage where the, where the sacraments are, okay? Uh, so the key here is it's not only a means of separation, but also in the public sphere, protection. So it's a way of keeping people or persons who are perceived as threats out of certain areas of the city or the community. So it's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of no trespassing or, or whites only, Okay? the phragmos. Now, interestingly, the Jewish historian Josephus, around Paul's time, writes that there existed in the temple of Paul's day, in Jesus' day, a five-foot wall, a phragmos, that separated the outer courts of the temple, you can read about this, from a series of stairs that led into the upper court, inner court of the temple, where the Jewish men could go. And there's courts between, the court of women, court of Gentiles, and ultimately this platform where worship took place, sacrifices, offerings, all that stuff. And Josephus said, that attached to this five-foot wall at various intervals around the temple were notices written in Greek and Latin, which were the common languages of the day, warning Gentiles, that's us, unless you were born Jewish, not to proceed on, on pain of death. Like it was a capital, by punishment of death, you would enter through this wall. Uh, which means this, Paul's employment of this metaphor would elicit a very strong uh, emotional response among the Gentile audience who are reading this. The Ephesians are pagan converts to Christian, not Jewish converts, generally. And the, and the actual walls that existed in their society, because uh, he used that word fragmos. Areas, sectors, places they, they were perceived as threats could not go, or they'd be killed. Which is why, notice Paul takes this a step further. There's not just a mere wall there. It's a wall of hostility. That word hostility, Paul uses it twice. It's this Greek word for hate. The old translation says enmity, but it's just a word that means hate. So there's a wall of hate. Uh, And this is a wall erected because fear had ultimately engendered this deep-seated hatred between Jewish person and Gentile person. And so the question you might be asking is, what caused the hate? Why are the Jewish people and the Gentile people hating each other? Well, ironically, getting back to the idea of circumcision now, it's simply uh, code there for the law and the commandments, uh, the regulations that structured their life. That's the thing that had created this barrier between them. The Mosaic law, the Old Testament, prophets, Exodus, Leviticus, all those rules, read that sometime. Regulations about how long your hair can be, what kind of clothes you can wear, all that stuff. How to live a holy life. The Jews were given this 
This is important. This legislation, if, I mean, you might not think of Leviticus as a gift, but they were given that book as a gift. And then through it, remember Abraham was told, you're blessed, that's the gift, to be a blessing. It was never just about following the commandments perfectly, boom. They were called to be a godly, holy nation, and then show the, remember Jesus, the, your light to the nations, city on a hill. Show the other nations what it means to live for God. They're supposed to live according to the law and, and be able to show all the nations. And nations is the Greek word ethnos, ethnic, <laughs> Gentiles. That's us, everybody, what godliness looks like. So on the one hand, the Jews have come to despise the Gentiles because they didn't have the law. They lived lawlessly. They were unclean. They were barbaric. You know, whatever words they would use. Um, actually, the word used here in the, in the, man, in the Ephesians 2 passage where it says they were godless, is the word we get atheists from. You're godless, athenos. So they called them atheists. Now, on the other hand, the Gentiles had come to despise the Jews for despising them. (laughs) Like, because, you know, they were narrow-minded, bigoted. And so as a result, there's this hostility and contempt and animosity, and all because of a good gift that God had given. I mean, it's just so tragic. Um, And so that's the context. But I want to pull this out of the context now, because Though the Jewish-Gentile context is important as followers of Christ and people who study the Word, and we could spend a lot more time on it, given the state of our world today and race relations and geopolitical issues, we have to see this is just a case example of a universal problem that's been going on for generations, eons. And here's what that universal problem is. When God gives us good gifts, talents, and strengths, there's something in us, in our hearts, that tends, not always, but tends to take those good gifts and elevates them to absolute value. We say, uh, I have this gift. I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I'm smart. I got into some good schools. And, and though that's good, I tend to elevate that to absolute value, and then I despise people. This is in my flesh, by the way. I don't do this all the time. Uh, be critical of people who maybe don't argue as well as I do, who didn't go to the certain schools, who maybe don't have certain degrees. You don't talk the way I talk. You know, with, with, they talk with an accent. I'm like, well, they're not smart, you know. Um, so the good gift, are you with me, becomes a basis for hostility. This is particularly true, not just between individuals, but between groups, races, cultures, and classes. The way we generally get identity, friends, in groups, group identity, and define ourselves and get our self-worth in groups and what's di- is by taking what's distinct about us cultural things, lifting it up, and then taking a look at other groups and judging them and saying, you know, well, we're not like them. <laughs> what they, the, way they, the way they view time, the, the way they drive, you know, the way they do the church, it's just, it's just wrong. You know, in, in Luke 18, Jesus illustrates this by telling a story of this, uh, this guy, Pharisee, religious guy, who goes up to the temple to pray. And he's praying outside the temple next to a tax collector who's a Gentile, a a non-Jew. And they're praying next to each other. Do you know what the prayer was? The first thing he says to God, Luke 18, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. That's the prayer. I mean, (laughs) I don't know who's ever prayed that to God, but that's just an example of how not to pray, okay? Like, don't thank God for something. I just, ugh, that guy was off track. So we we attach subjective value to our, I think the point there is that our racial, cultural, class group, we, we, we say it's better the way, what, the, the, the family I was born into, the culture I was born into, 
the, and, and, and we say that because we belong to a group, the group we belong to, there's something better about it inherently. There was a, this was essentially the reason for the genocide in Rwanda. When I went there a couple summers ago and learned all about the genocide um, and how the Tutsis and the Hutus had been conditioned, by the way, by the Belgian colonists, <laughs> Catholic Belgian colonists, which is another story, uh, their bias against each other, this horrific, horrific genocide, was based on things, listen to this, like nose shape, like if your nose was long or, or wide, um, forehead size, whether your forehead was long or narrow, um, whether you are a farmer or a herdsman, the darkness of your skin. Before those things started happening, these Belgian priests and doctors came and started saying, well, you know, if you have a certain forehead and nose and if you're a herdsman, you're this group and you're this group if you don't. And that's, the, that's how the Tutsis and the Hutus came to be. Before that happened, they were one, one tribe, one people. They were Wandis. Based on those criteria, around biases and prejudice, prejudices that were kind of infused into their culture, deep-seated animosity, hatred, and eventually unspeakable cruelty happened. In other words, um, all I'm trying to say is we get it, we often, I'm not saying always, so don't feel bad, we often get our identity by looking down on others and then excluding them based on our group. Okay, that's the big point here. And so here's the principle. There's something in our hearts uh, that, that, that takes what's good about us, about us, lifts it up so we can feel superior. We get identity from it, worth. And that's equivalent to the law and the regulations Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2 here, which was intended, like I said, as, as a good thing. We turn it into a way of establishing bias, separation, race, groups. And in that, what Paul says, will only and always lead to hatred, a wall of animosity. If you do that, I just want to caution you, because what Paul is, I think, trying to instruct us is when you allow yourself to go down that path, the end of that road is hate. And, 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 and so be careful when you start to say those things like, well, I'm them, that group, they. I mean, really evaluate where your heart's going because your heart leans in that direction. And though we may not go as far as the genocide, I hope, ever, um, that's just slippery slope. That's what Paul's saying. And we do it all the time. I'm just saying, like, whether you, you know, we do it with cultural things as silly as, like, if you see somebody with a wazoo sticker on the back of their car um, or the clothing people wear. Like I said, a guy walking down the street with a, uh, I don't even know what to call it, but a robe going to the mosque on a Friday in progressive Seattle. We do it with pernicious things. Um, people with dark skin. People, like I said, are wearing head coverings or hoodies. I was talking to somebody this week who was walking down the street in Edmonds wearing a hoodie. Doesn't even, isn't even black, and, and somebody yelled out of the car the N-word at them. So we do it when we see a hoodie, you know. We do it for when we support particular political causes, or we don't. Like, you're on Facebook, or no, not anymore, but anyway, wherever you do this stuff now. Um, and if you do or you don't post about something, if you do or you don't like it, or you put the heart, <laughs> you do or don't do that, we attach all kinds of value to that in our friend groups. And we say, well, they're, they're narrow-minded because they liked that, that, that thing, or they didn't. They didn't post about that thing, and it's really important to me. And, and, and that meaning, that deep meaning we put on those things, we, we do it, and it leads us down this really, really bad, dark road. So that's the problem, okay? 
Merry Christmas, right? So uh, here's the, I, that's why I want to get to the purpose. Because God desires, I took the fence out in front of my yard to put something in place of that. Like, I'm not just trying to tear this all down and just burn it down now. I think God wants to put something in place of the walls of hostility. But he doesn't want to tear them down. So verse 15, it's really great how specific Paul gets here. God, I love this. Like, for me, this is really helpful. God's purpose was to create in himself... Like, if you're, if you're, by the way, if you're in business and you write mission statements, great example of how to write a mission statement. God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Period. Let's move on to the third point. No, I'm kidding. So it's like a fascinating solution because God says in very strong terms that God brought about peace by abolishing the law and the commandments and the regulations. Like, yeah, taking the fence out and then creating in himself in replacement of that, one new, the literal word here is man, one new hum, human being uh, out of the two. Now, don't forget, Jew and Gentile on that day, for Paul's audience, is, the, is every race. That's the known world. Okay, so for our context, if you're Jewish here, obviously you're Jewish, and then there's the rest of us, we're Gentiles. That's, all, that's every race, every culture in the world. It's very comprehensive, okay? So we need to apply ourselves to this story. So what Paul's saying here is that God's purpose inside the church, our church, is to create one new human being. That's why you've gathered today. One new man, one new woman, one new human being in in place of every possible individual human being here. So there's a couple hundred of you, and we are one. We are called to be one. God's making us one. By the way, the goal here, this is really important, is to create something new. Not a new Jewish person, not a new Gentile person, just something new. Uh, so it's not like how much more Jewish do the Gentiles need to be? How much do they need to conform? They need to just do more Bible study. Get that law down, man. Just get a Leviticus into their hearts, and then they'll be accepted. It's also not how much do the Jews need to just compromise and let go. You're just being just too uh, conservative, just too narrow. It's that God's saying, just stop talking about those two conversations. And literally, through Christ's death, my goal is to create something new, a new human, new humanity. So Chrysostom, he's one of the church fathers, he puts it this way. I love this in his commentary on this verse. It's as though God took a statue of silver and a statue of lead. And if you know anything about, like, smithing, I guess this is what you do. it. They, they, he put them into a smelt and... Uh, and melted them down, and then put them to a forge, in a, like, a, like a statue mold. And then when he opened it up, after it cooled, it's a statue of gold. He put in silver and lead, and out came gold. So fundamentally different from its beginning. There's no gold in that pure lead. There's no gold in that pure silver. Just something totally different came out. And by the way, better. We would say uh, gold is more precious than silver... There's a song there, isn't there? So, because, you, because, see, the Greek term here for new, something completely unlike what it was before, it refers to being different in kind and quality. So, spiritually, a new person in Christ is no longer Jewish or Gentile. They're a new kind. It hasn't, you haven't existed before. You're new. And you're also being redeemed, restored, transformed, like, better. Okay? Your old life is gone. Your new life has come. So, another key point here, according to one commentator, is that this new humanity is also not an individual human. It's a corporate humanity. And I've kind of been speaking to this, but they are new people. 
persons to whom God has created, that God has created through the cross. They, they've been united. We've been united. We're being united. So the inclusive, we are the inclusive representative of God's presence on earth. Like every, every person who chooses to gather here, as, as narrow-minded and bigoted as they would be, as progressive and way, way out there as they'd be, has, God is saying, I want to enfold them into my new humanity. It's my, I do it. I'm the smith. I'm the one who does it. It's not your job. Don't worry about it. But because they are a person made in my image, they're an image bearer. I created them. Let me do that work. I mean, they're a new creation. Make sense? And so the effect of Jesus' work is not homogenization. This is kind of what I'm trying to say. It's not conformity. It's not assimilation. He's making new groups not more alike, but transforming them and making them different. And uh, the reference points, like a third, we talk about this at Bethany, a third way. It's a transformed, renewed union with Christ and in Christ. That's what we're going for here. In fact, in, in Galatians 3, which is really helpful, kind of corollary to this, Paul has this whole section uh, at the end of Galatians 3. Let me just read it really quickly because I think the language here is super helpful. In Galatians 3.26, uh, Paul says this, In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor, there, nor is there male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. So here's the language, in Christ, into Christ, close with Christ, belonging to Christ, all one, every one of us. You know, I remember hearing this story once of this man named Addison Leach. He was a Cambridge University professor, and uh, way back in the day, PhD, uh, probably a British accent, you know, Gandalf. And so he goes... Uh, he's driving to this, he's teaching at adjunct at this school in California, and he's going to this gathering of professors and other educators, intellectuals. And so he's driving to, from where he was staying to this gathering, like a, a party. And he knew, there's, you know, because they're intellectuals, there's going to be some wine, cheese, maybe some scotch because he's British. And uh, they're going to listen to classical music, Right. And then they're going to have lectures, and they're going to debate, and they're going to have talks. And Alicia's smiling, because is, is this true? Happened with intellectuals? No. He, this is his story, so I'm not making this up. But uh, uh, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. They're going to talk about books, you know. In other words, here's the point. He said he was going off to see a group of people who were all like him, educators, PhDs, professors, culturally like him, shared his interests and his tastes, could kind of match his intellectual prowess. And so then on the way, he's in California, turns on the radio as he's driving. And, it, you know, AM radio, and it doesn't have, it's, a, it's like a Christian AM radio station, you can imagine. And there's this guy on the radio named Brother Bob, like preaching hellfire and brimstone. And he said at first he was really turned off, you know. You can imagine, Brother Bob, you know. And uh, he almost turned the radio off, but he decided to listen because he's curious. You know, as an intellectual, just very curious, if you, see if he could learn something. <laughs> and, and though... He's a Christian, and he, this guy couldn't have been, Brother Bob couldn't have been more different from Leach. His, he didn't sound like Addison Leach. He had this drawl, thick drawl. His presentation of the gospel seemed wrong, just absolutely wrong. All of his illustrations, his arguments were just wrong to Leach. His grammar was wrong. All of it was wrong. And then all of a sudden, because he called himself Brother Bob, Leach realized something powerful, powerful. 
He was driving off to spend time with these people just like him. They read the same books, have the same degrees, enjoy the same food, culturally just like him, but he's listening to his brother, Brother Bob. They're brothers. I mean, Paul uses the language all the time, brothers and sisters. Why do you think he does that? He's reminding us, because of the gospel, though Brother Bob and his presentation of the gospel is radically different, maybe my presentation of the gospel is radically different, because we share Christ, he realized that they have the same core identity. We are one in Christ. We belong to Christ. So I'm called, and you're called by the gospel to recognize that connection. Not only just recognize it, but seek to establish it in the Spirit. Like to see in my relationships, especially with those whose skin pigmentation might be darker, which is many people for me, uh, whose ethnic and cultural heritage is different, whose language and accent are different, whose interests and views are different, whose politics are different. You just fill in the difference. I'm called to seek and develop a bond with them that is greater than tribe, tongue, nation, culture, whatever it would be. I am a Christ follower first, and I'm a man second. That's what this is saying. I am a Christ follower first, and I'm an American second. I am a Christ follower first, I'm seminary educated second. I'm a Christ follower first, and I'm a white person second. You put any one of those things before you put Christ follower, you're going to have a really hard time inside the story of God. So a new human bomb has been forged in Christ. That's what Paul's pressing us to understand so that God can finally do something that's never been done before on planet Earth. That's to, and that's to free us from the horrible divisions that are killing people, literally killing people, destroying human worth, and, then, and keeping us from living at peace and union with God and union with each other. So the question that remains is, how? Like, how do you do that? Which is a good question. I'm glad you asked it. This is our third point, God's strategy. Like, how, how does God break down the, the wall and then bring about union? How did God do this? And now, initially, I thought we'd just look at verses 16 and 17 and finish, because God clearly says he does this through the cross, but to death the hostility between us. And then verse 17, he preaches peace. And, and that's true. Like, we need to constantly hold the image of the cross before our eyes, and see, the cross is not a manner by which I just experience personal salvation. That's not the point of the cross. It's just not about me and Jesus. Instead, the cross is a means by which every tribe, tongue, and nation are given free access to the Father, unmitigated access to the Father. That's why Paul says here it's, it's both individual worth and value as image bearers, like all people created in the image of God, as well as collective value, worth, and identity. So there's no such thing as a superior race or culture. Never has been. And Cultures that have said that are, are not Christian cultures. They cannot be. Uh, and when that idea takes shape in our, our culture, we have to do battle with it. We have to. Um, so the cross is fundamentally multicultural. It transcends culture, okay? And it, it should never be held culturally captive. If it ever is, man, I hope, standing on this stage, we would oppose that idea. Uh, but <laughs> as I looked at the passage in more depth and really thinking about kind of how to apply that into your lives, because how do you apply that idea into your life? Paul gives the application in verses 19 and 20. He employs these increasingly intense metaphors that illustrates how God ends division and creates a new humanity. And these provide this beautiful picture of the work we're called into. So let's look at that real quick, and I'm going to provide you some kind of handles. So verse 19, Paul says, We're no longer foreigners and strangers, but citizens in the kingdom of God, members of God's household, and stones in the temple of God where Christ is the cornerstone. So what we have here are three images that Paul uses very deliberately. Um, 
And, and the increasing intensity here. So first of all, citizens. That's the image of nation. We're God's people, his nation. And then we're a, a household. That's the image of children and parents. We're God's sons and daughters. We're, we're family. And then thirdly, temple. That's God's dwelling place. We are stones being built together as a, as a, as a habitation for God's presence through God's spirit. And as you look at those images and ponder them, they get, like I said, more intense with regard to our relationships with each other and with God. So it gets relationally more intense with each other. Uh, well, let's start with God. Because like a king lives in a country uh, among his people, but a father lives under the same roof, generally, uh, with his children. And in a temple, you get this idea that God actually lives inside, like the Jewish people would have believed, that God lived inside the temple, like inside the stones, like they were holy, the, 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 the stones. So he inhabits that. Uh, when you think about our relationships, like if you're co-citizens, we are most of us, um, some of us aren't, but like we, we may live miles from each other, but we still have the same citizenship. If you're children growing up in the same home, your brother and sister, you hopefully don't live miles from each other, though I think our kids would love this, um, but you live just feet from each other. And if you're stones in a building, there's no distance. You're cemented together. Does, do you see this? Each one's more intense relationally as well as spiritually. And this is what Paul's saying. The more powerful the force that shapes you, the more fitted you are for anyone who's been shaped by that same force. The more powerful the force that shapes you, whether it's citizenship, family, or your, or your uh, spiritual identity, the more fitted you are for anyone else that's, that's been shaped by that same force. So, for example, culture is powerful. If you grew up in the same country as somebody else, or you say you're living away from your country of origin, and this was true for me when I was in Kenya for a year, and you find somebody else who shares your same culture, like you find another American there, you find another Kenyan here, and you're like, it doesn't matter like how old they are, how young they are, how cool they are, if they're missing like all their teeth, and they're like, man, let's talk, because like, let's talk about home, right? And... Um, because home is a powerful, like, culture is a powerful force. But then family is even more powerful, like who your parents are, who your siblings are, how you were treated growing up, what your backstory is. We all know this, whether you had a great family of origin or a really difficult one. Therefore, people who are family, because they've been shaped by these experiences, tend to be more fitted for each other. Like if you had a hard experience, for example, like I did, my sister and I had a recent conversation. She, my parents moved back to Spokane to retire, and they live like a mile from my sister. And I've told her for 20 years since leaving home, yep, I'm going to live as far from mom and dad as possible. And so they move in. She texted me just recently and said, wow, I finally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> like, they're up in our business all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I've been telling you for 20 years. You think I was like on drugs or something? No. I mean, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. So we, but we could resonate with each other in that and uh, understand desires and longings. Now, here's where the metaphor gets mixed. So sorry for the English majors. If you're a brick being shaped in an oven or you're being chiseled together as a whatever bricklayer, ideally, there's no distance between you at all. Because if there is, you know, with culture, nation, family, like in some families, the more the distance, the better, right? Um, but with bricks and stones in a building, if there's any distance, that building will not stand. It will just topple right over. It's impossible for it to stand or at least it won't stand for long. So they have to be fitted together for, and this is the point, for God to dwell in that place. You have to be tight. 
So the more powerful the force that shapes you, the more fitted you are for anyone or any, everything else, anyone else shaped by the same force, you're more fitted for them. Paul's saying that if the gospel has touched your life in any way, and if it's begun to sunk into your heart and settled into your heart, it, its, it's intention is to become a unifying structure by which you, you all, all of us, are shaped. A powerful shaping force that brings us together, not a few chairs apart, not one day a week, but tightly together as one in Christ. Uh, and so, uh, the, it's, the, it's, a, it's meant to be the most powerful shaping force in the world, bar none, which means, by way of conclusion, there's some fitting work that we need to engage in. Um, we have an opportunity here. Like, maybe I'd say participate in. So what I want to do by finishing, just give you some practical ways to lean into this. This is kind of like, real quick, uh, these are opportunities based on these, these last three things. So in verses 19 to 22 still, this is kind of that responsibility section I said, and I'll go quickly. Basically, looking at what Paul says about nation, family, and temple means that if, if you're a Christ follower here today, you're being called to deep relationships and deepening relationships, deepening involvement in Christian community. And so how deep? Let me show you. Uh, first, the depth of public responsibility. Okay? We are fellow citizens, which means we have a, a re- citizenship responsibility to each other. Uh, which means, like Paul says in Philippians 1, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. So here's the question. What are the dimensions and demands of the gospel in that area? Like our, and are we living together publicly uh, as we respond to racism, ethnic violence, poverty, political issues? Are we living together publicly in a way when those things start to diminish other people simply for who they are, whether they're refugees, people of color, women, LGBT, I mean, whatever, children, when the culture around us threatens to, to threaten people just because of who they are, are we standing with those people and saying, we are, we are citizens? We, the gospel demands that we live out our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not a personal ticket to heaven. It's, it's public, it has public ramifications for here and today. And thus, when things happen that affect one of us or a segment of us, things that are painful and difficult, racism, violence, poverty, our responsibility as fellow citizens is to respond to those things and step into those things. Um, And thus, my friends, we have to ask ourselves, are we living in that way in Lake City, in View Ridge, at at work, at the UW, uh, wherever you are, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, are you, are you living in a way that you're, like, there's this Ubuntu thing I was going to read from Desmond Tutu, but I'm short on time. He talks about this idea of Ubuntu from Africa, South Africa, which really just means our humanity is inextricably bound up together. Are we living in such a way that our humanity, the God-givenness about each of us, is just inextricably bound up? So when you're in pain, I'm in pain. When you're in joy, I'm in joy. Like, I'm with you. I'm for you. Um, and because the gospel is about liberation always and freedom— I'm, I'm doing that because I want you to be more free, not be in bondage. So that's the first thing. We have a, a public responsibility to each other. The second thing is, is this idea of a depth of whole life hospitality. So students who go to school together, they study together pretty much. That's what they're supposed to do. I'm sure my kids do more than that. But, you know, there's, I hear a lot about recess. But anyway, colleagues in an office, though, this is changing with the whole internet or tech revolution, generally are there to work together, though there's a lot of other activities I hear are happening, like foosball and ping pong, and there's kegs now, you know, like whatever. You're there to work, right? 
that's pretty much what you're here for. Hobbyists in a club, like I ride my bike. If we started knitting, like if it was like we're riding our bike to a place to go knitting, I'd be like, what? You know, we ride, and there's a knitting club, and I'd join the knitting club if I wanted to knit, and our book club if I wanted to read books. So hobbyists do things together that they're interested in. Families live together, uh, which means if you're in a family, you're, no matter what, you share each other's space, you share each other's things, you eat together, you play together, you work together. Man, I've loved you guys for doing this with your family. Like, you're just doing it all. And um, so, like, we've taken that on with our kids, and, like, after dinner, we're clearing the table. We're doing the dishes. We're cleaning up because we're family. This is not a restaurant. And by the way, you're not tipping, so if you were tipping, maybe I'd do your dishes for you. Um, there's a little pro tip for you. So, so we're, we're called as citizens and children to share our things, uh, open our purses to each other, open our space. This is why we have a little blurb in there about the Petrie family this morning in the bulletin. Have practical needs in their lives, and I'll invite you to read that because we get a chance to lean into that as a community and walk with them. So by way of another application is, is we're invited to hospitality with each other. Hospitality means letting go, of your, letting go of your privacy and letting people into your life. Not just showing up at events like this, um, but like saying, hey, my door is open for you. And I mean, why do you think Jesus spent so much time around the table <laughs> when he was in his, his life? Different people different than himself, tax collectors, sinners, even some occasional Pharisees. Because I think he himself longed for an experience of family. He's away from home. He wants a family. He's a human being. And so he's like, hey, union with people. That's how I'm wired. So we're going to do meals. And I'm going to be invited into people's homes. That can only happen when you're opening your door. And so are you opening your life to other people? Are you not taking your fence down like I did, but uh, like inviting people into your life who are different? Like if you looked around the room right now, Look around real quick. Just look around. Just glance at some of the faces around you. Glance beyond your spouse. There are, I mean, there are so many different types of people here, friends. And we often gravitate toward the same. Well, I, they have kids. I have kids. They're single. I'm single. They have different skin color, or they have the same skin color. That I'm going to go there. They're a little older. I'm going to go there. Might we begin by introducing ourselves to the younger person if you're older, the person with darker skin if you're, if you're white like me, the person without kids if you have kids, and then taking it to the next step and saying, hey, let's get, would you like to get coffee or lunch? I'd like to get to know your story a little bit. I'd like to practice hospitality with you. Just open my life up because God is, is bringing us together, one new human, and that can only happen when we're fitted together like that as a family, okay? Here's the last thing we'll finish with, and then we'll celebrate communion. We're invited um, to deepen our relationships through corporate spirituality. So look at the temple here. God comes down, not into you as an individual brick, but he comes into the temple, inhabits us together. And it's when we're together, praying together, sharing our hearts together, worshiping like this together, uh, confessing, forgiving, seeking healing. That's when God's oneness in Christ is most profoundly experienced. So are you coming to church on Sundays, with that expectation, like that level of depth? Are you, are, you, are you sitting with just the people you know and just coming and going, just singing the songs, um, listening to the sermon, taking the notes, and then going home? Or are you saying, God, I'm here, I need healing. I'm here, I need 
freedom. I'm here. I need connection. I'm going to go deep. This is the hour or so I have. I'm just going to go into it. And because, see, we're not just citizens. We are. And we're not just family. We are. But we're, this is what Paul says. We are stones being built together to become a dwelling, listen to this, in which God himself longs to live by the Spirit. So that's the reason we gather on Sunday and we're going to do this communion thing. Because God has a deep longing to be inside this physical space with us, inside of our community, and then express himself. That's why our kids are going to come back now. Express himself through us. That's radical. God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, wants to do that work. So might we fulfill this scripture in, in our, might God fulfill this scripture in our hearing today? Um, we'll do it with his help. Let's pray. God, thank you for this challenging but, um, and dense but beautiful scripture. Thanks that we as a church, Bethany Northeast, get to practice it together. Thanks that uh, the promise on the table this morning in bread and in juice, body and blood, is that your desire is to inhabit our lives, inhabit our praises, inhabit our fellowship, inhabit our brokenness. You long to do that, God, because you and you alone uh, have the power to heal, have the power to unify, have the power to express the life of Christ in community. So we thank you for that power, and we, we ask for it in more measure and depth this morning. Praying in Christ's name. Amen.